Genetics play a huge role. Drives play a huge role. How they're raised, nutrition plays a huge role. I think all of it has to be addressed holistically. If we aren't coming from all of those perspectives, I feel like we kind of fall short. I do think theory is valuable, but I don't think it's the end all be all. I kind of compare it to book smarts and people who actually get in there and do it have street smarts. You do need a mixture of both to be successful in this career. I meet people who are extremely knowledgeable. You put a leash in their hand and they don't have any idea how to implement it. I think there's a lot of flaws with working with food. You can't carry on your, your training sessions as long as they need to be to create the elasticity in the mind, to create the endurance that the dog needs because the dog's gonna be satiated before you've really reached the level that you need to reach. Another thing is offering constructive criticism and getting the dog to bounce back in a healthy way. And a much healthier option for introducing correction and criticism would be through play. Where do I start? How do I train recall? How long should we work on healing before moving on? Is crate training really that important? We hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them. The complete step-by-step -step dog training course found at Standing Stone Supply. They break down the what, when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one year old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out standingstonesupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. This this episode, we're going to kind of step out of the hunting dog community realm and speak with Stephanie Vachinsky of Method Canine. Stephanie, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so honored to be here. This is very exciting. Yeah, you know... Right before we hit record, we were just kind of, I was trying to explain to you that I, I, I'm one in the hunting dog community that thinks that there's a lot of value and knowledge and wisdom that we can glean outside of our little echo chamber, if you will, kind of getting out of the, the hunting dog realm and learning more so what what just the principles of dog training is, because I'm I'm kind of a firm believer in doing this this podcast for a number of years and that the principles kind of lead to people finding the correct method for themselves and their dogs. And so, you know, I'm not the biggest component of finding a whole bunch of people on social media or YouTube and, and taking advice from them, but your videos and reels and stuff, you know, there's been a number of them that kind of snag me and I, I get to, I get sucked in and I'm like, all right, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so I, I was reached out to you. I wanted to kind of explore some of the more common issues, challenges, situations that us in the hunting dog community have, but there's also kind of a unique balance into doing some of the training that you do in regards to maybe not taking some of the prey drive out or the hunt out of the dog. So I'm excited to kind of explore those options, but let's start with you introducing yourself to my audience, kind of tell everybody what it is that you do and a little bit about Method Canine. Absolutely. Um, so we are a dog training facility, like many others, we run, you know, typical programs, you know, board and trains, group classes, private sessions and such. Um, we train trainers around the world, et cetera. And we do it all from a 
behavioral perspective. Um, so we are pet dog trainers for sure. Uh, we are focusing very heavily on the behavioral components. Um, so things like aggression, reactivity, anxiety, fear, resource guarding, uh, those are the cases that we're taking on a regular basis. And that's really what we've dedicated our entire career to is, is really trying to help those dogs in the best way possible to fully rehabilitate them. Um, and really sidestep a lot of the age old advice of, you know, obedience will fix everything and things like that. And really trying to help those people who've been doing obedience, who've been doing a lot of other things and, and finding that they're just coming up on a dead end over and over again, and really trying to think outside the box for those behavioral dogs. So that's what we do. And that's what we specialize in. And, um, it's just, it's made a nice little niche for us. Um, even in the pet world, it's made a nice little niche for us. So we really enjoy what we do. We're very passionate about it. And it's, it's something that we give our whole heart and soul to. Um, so it's a, it's a really good thing. It's been very good for us. Now, in your experience, do you really get the, uh, opportunity to work with more sporting dog breeds? I know you work with working dog breeds in general, but hunting dogs, while you can kind of group them in into that working dog class, uh, I think that there's a couple little characteristics or a little, just a little bit of nuance to them. Uh, do you really get to work with sporting dog breeds and, and bird dogs particularly? Yeah, we, we see a lot of pointers. <laughs> pointers uh, have a tendency to struggle with a lot of behavioral issues, especially if they're not in more of a working home. Um, they struggle to fit in no different than a lot of your other, you know, dogs that were designed more for working. So your healers and your Aussies and stuff like that struggle. And then you've got your mouths and your shepherds. Um, but we do see a lot of pointers. We see, you know, dogs of that effect and, um, carrying on a very similar issues as a lot of the other dogs being underfulfilled um, in their capacity of what they should be doing, but also struggling with um, poor genetics and a lot of other things that are making life very difficult for them. And when we kind of deal for, we deal with it from a behavioral perspective, we can, you know, satisfy them uh, as the hunting dog that they were designed to be, but also help make them, you know, a quality pet at home so that they don't necessarily have to live that hunting lifestyle. So yeah, we do see a fair amount. I wouldn't say, I would say it's probably about 30% of the dogs that come in. So it's, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good mix. I get, I get tons of pointers. I probably have one to two in almost every round, um, if not a pointer mix of some sort. Um, so I'd say that that's probably, you know, the majority, I do see a lot of labs that come through. Um, we've just had two, three labs that, that went home just in this last round for human aggression, dog aggression issues and things like that. So we see a lot of them come through. Of course, we see goldens just primarily because they're so popular and, uh, but you know, they, they come with all of their own issues, just like any other breed. Um, so we do see a, a fair amount of them. And then of course we see the more working dogs, you know, the, the mouse and the shepherds see a lot of those. Those are probably the primary that we're seeing coming through. And then every once in a while we get the silly goofy dog that just doesn't know how to fit in, you know, that's snapped at a couple of people and nobody really knows what to do with it, that kind of thing. But yeah, there's definitely a solid mixture of what we get. And, you know, it, somebody listening to this, it, that's really heavy in the hunting side of the world, you know, it, it's kind of, I think things are shifting within the hunting dog community to where it's kind of like you have the old school approach or thinkers, and then you kind of have the newer people to where they're getting into it to where, 
you know, their dog is a pet first, a companion first, and then hunting dog second. You know, I, I would group myself into that that group as well because let's face it, I, I'm a pretty hardcore hunter. I, I hunt as much as I possibly can, but at mm-hmm. the end of the day, if you really kind of add up the amount of time a field as opposed to the time living in the house with your family around your kids and, and your guests yeah. and stuff like that, even the most just the the most enthusiastic hunter their dog is going to have more time being a pet than it is a hunting dog and and years past decades past maybe generations past you know they more or less would be in the kennel you know an outdoor kennel run or something like that and then they would come out hunt and then go back and do their things but now everybody's getting that dog and so you have one to two dogs living in the house but then you you add in a whole bunch of different challenges or or I don't know, considerations, whether you're adding kids, you know, are they allowed on the furniture or not? Should we crate train? Should we, there's a whole lot of stuff that while most of us, we want to go hunting and we get the dogs for that aspect. We also need to take care of the stuff inside the house because all of that, that behavior and that relationship bleeds over into the field and can really impact just how quality of a hunter and and just kind of a teamwork that you have in the field. And so when we talk about behavior, I want to start there with you as define when when we when we talk about dog trainers versus dog behaviorists, I want to I want to define that a little bit because somebody that's just entering this world might be confused or put off to where like, well, do I need a trainer or do I need a behaviorist? And in your opinion, should they really kind of be both? Yeah, so that that's a really good question. And anybody who's looking at those terms in the sense of dog training should really not put much faith in either one of them because dog training is an unregulated field. Um, so you can get someone you know who claims to be a behaviorist and they don't know anything. And you can claim get someone who claims to be a dog trainer and they're phenomenal um, in their understanding of canine behavior. So you know, labeling those terms is, is it's just misleading. Um, So, you know, if you were going to look at the actual definitions, you know, a trainer would be somebody who's attempting to change behavior. A behaviorist would be somebody who's studying behavior, but how you could have one without the other, I don't really know. I would think that everybody who claims to be a trainer should be studying behavior, um, of course, but labeling yourself as such, I don't feel is necessary. I don't feel like it really clarifies anything because you can get a certificate from anywhere you want that says that you're a behaviorist. You don't even need a certificate. You could just write that after your name anytime that you want. Um, same thing with dog trainer. You don't need any certificates or anything like that to be dog training. Just go open your business tomorrow. Um, so the terms don't really matter. I think the way that you represent yourself as a company and as, you know, as a dog enthusiast, dog trainer, dog behaviorist, whatever you want to call yourself, I think how you represent yourself and educate people ultimately tells, you know, the clientele out there everything that they need to know. And so the, unfortunately, the terms are just, they're all mud, all terms for everything in the dog world are just all mud. So we can just stay away from terms and do just as well without them. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I mean, even on this podcast, I've had some people, you know, way back when do do regular episodes that refer to themselves as I'm a behaviorist, but I don't really train and then vice versa. I'm a trainer and and I don't really pay attention to the overall like behavioral theory. And I'm I'm like, well, you know, if if we're trying to develop a behavior 
and characteristic within a dog, that's really like what we're training for. So we're developing that behavior. Uh, so I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't really understand distinguishing be- between the two, but it does bring up an interesting question is how much in our dogs are, can we contribute to like maybe genetic or just natural behaviors and instincts versus learned behaviors and instincts? I think that is, uh, again, another uh, area that is up for debate and not just up for debate in the dog world, but I would say, you know, as far as human psychology uh, goes, I would say that that's highly up for debate. And if you look at, you know, behaviorists, if we want to call them, you know, Thorndike and Pavlov and, you know, Skinner and things like that, they're, they're coming from a very molecular perspective, meaning that everything about us is done through associative learning. So it's all through consequence and that's how we become who we become. And there's not really a lot of depth in there, um, you know, and then you have other people who are coming from a much more molar perspective, which is kind of that big picture thing, looking at the genetics, looking at things like drives, things like instincts, all of those terms are coming from those bigger picture you know, ideas about things um, and how all of that relates to physiology and things like that. So it's really hard to say. My opinion is that there is a healthy balance of nature versus nurture when it comes to the dogs. I do think genetics play a huge role. I do think that drives play a huge role. I do think that um, you know, how they're raised plays a huge role. I think nutrition plays a huge role, you know, that I think all of it has to be addressed holistically in order for us to truly change the behavior or coach the behavior that a certain dog is exhibiting. If we aren't coming from all of those perspectives, I feel like we kind of fall short when we're trying to work with the dog. Mm-hmm. How important is it? Because I, I agree with you. It's like, it's, it, you have these little compartments and really one is not really more important than the other. It, it is kind of an, a holistic approach if we're after that that companion dog that really fits our lifestyle and we just have a healthy relationship with our dog. But how important is it, in your opinion, that the average dog owner, maybe they're just getting their first dog, really understands the the theory or the science behind things or the labels you know you bring up Skinner and the and the four quadrants and and Pavlov and the classical conditioning and stuff like that you know I was really kind of nerding out on that a couple years ago until I was actually bouncing a couple ideas off of uh my buddy Grayson and and it's like he's like man you know, that stuff exists and it's great, but at the end of the day, no matter what, whether you acknowledge it or not, or whether you're proficient in it or not, all that stuff's kind of happening behind the scenes regardless. And so it's kind of like, he doesn't really put a whole lot of stock in labeling that behaviors or if you're, you know, positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, it's just kind of built into the cake. Would you kind of agree with that? Or would you say it is important for the average person to have some sort of knowledge on it? I think I think the average person is totally capable of understanding those concepts. I think the average person would become overwhelmed if we make it too deep. So I do think there is some necessity there to cover those concepts because that's the why. And very often myself and my company get clients that say, you know, we went through trainer after trainer after trainer. They told us to do A, B, and C. They told us to do A, B, and C. They told us to, A, to do A, B, and C. And you're the first company that told us why we're doing A, B, and C. 
And now it makes sense why we're doing A, B, and C. And they're much more likely to repeat that. So um, while I don't think the depth is extremely not, uh, important, although my company does provide that to people and they can nerd out as deep as they want, um, I do think some of it is necessary for the why. And I do think some of it is necessary for every dog trainer out there because you need to be able to explain the why. And if you can't explain the why, then we ha just have a whole bunch of question marks within our clients. And sometimes we even get question marks within the dogs if we don't understand the why. So I do think theory is valuable, but I don't think it's the end all be all. I kind of compare it to book smarts and people who actually get in there and do it have street smarts. You do need a mixture of both to be successful in this career. Yeah. Because I mean, let's face it, you know, the why I, that's kind of a talking point and, and a, a, a slogan, if you will, throughout this podcast over the years is worry about the why, not the how. And I've been guilty to where I can, I can kind of, again, go off the deep end and, and really kind of like jump too far into, you know, which quadrant am I in and the theory, because I just, I think it's a fun conversation and fun discussion to have with people. Mm. But at the end of the day, the how is important to people. And mm -hmm. it, but you know, so many people get wrapped up into, well, how do I do this? And they don't learn the why, or they go and ask somebody, well, how do I do this? And somebody will explain it to them. But then that that trainer or person that they ask for help can't explain it either. And so if there's any kind of friction or or gap or maybe it's just not making sense to the dog, you're kind of left there. And, and, and this is really, I would say, you hear this a lot in the hunting dog world. It's like, oh, well, my dog doesn't do X, Y, and Z or it doesn't respond in this manner. And they're just told, well, your dog doesn't have it genetically. Go get right. another dog. And it's right. kind of like, well, hold up here. Like... It, it should have the genetic components. It's just maybe the dog doesn't learn the best way in this method. But if you don't understand the why, how can you really go about fixing that or exactly. addressing it? Yes, it's it's very, very important. Both are extremely important. And I, I meet people who are extremely knowledgeable about dogs. I mean, they've been studying dogs for years. They've got degrees and they've got certificates up the wazoo. You put a leash in their hand and they don't have any idea how to implement it. Um, so book smarts are important. Street smarts are equally as important, right? You have to be able to explain what you're doing, how you're doing, but why you're doing it. And if you can't even explain it to yourself, you're going to, you're going to want run into a lot of roadblocks along the way. And you're going to wind up in your, you know, specific industry. You're going to wind up washing a lot of dogs that you put effort, a lot of effort and time into when it might not be necessary to wash them. One thing that I've really appreciated kind of going through your catalog of videos, reels, it, just the information that you've put out is you put a lot of emphasis on trying to make it make sense to the average person, making it relatable. And I think you do a great job of kind of putting people in a certain situation that they can find themselves in a day-to-day -day life and, and put that in, in how they should go about training their dog. But I also think that there's a there's a fine line, there's a balance here to where 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 do we stop trying to get so much into the dog's head and maybe anthropomorphize them to where, you know, dogs do learn by association primarily, but you do put a lot of emphasis on getting the dog to think and understand for themselves. So like where is that fine line, especially when it comes into terms of the average person getting into this that maybe doesn't have 
you know, 30, 40 dogs of experience behind their belt? Well, you know, when it comes to dogs, I think the comparisons to human beings are a necessary evil to try to create connection with the human beings that are handling them. I think the comparisons to children are, again, a necessary evil in the respect that our children are learning through associative, you know, interchanges every single day. We are, I'm learning about you as, as we speak here right now, right? I'm learning a lot of different things about you and it's all through association. So sometimes we have to draw those lines in order to create those aha moments with people. But I think when we get to the point that we are treating our dogs as a different species and we are treating them as human beings and also projecting all of our emotions and problems onto them as opposed to the species that they are, we wind up running into a lot of problems. And this is the, you know, this is what we see. We see a lot of emotional support animals who've been just wrecked over time because they're handling emotions and they're handling situations and they're handling, you know, stress and all this imbalance of hormones. Um, and they weren't designed for that, right? But when you're just talking about teaching and comparing, you know, human beings to dogs and things like that, I think that's very appropriate and very necessary. And it's things that the earliest, you know, documenters of behavior going all the way back to Darwin and then moving, jumping forward to Skinner, Pavlov, et cetera, they're looking at behavior from a complete perspective, you know, animal behavior, mammal behavior, animal behavior, and human behavior. And they're trying to categorize all of us into the, the same thing. So I do think that there is a lot of commonality there that needs to be drawn upon in order for the average dog owner to get it. And sometimes for the you know, the trainer to get it too. I do think that's valuable, but it can absolutely go too far when we stop treating the dog as a dog and we start treating the dog as a human being, you know, in the sense that they're given more liberty than they can handle in the sense that they're given more choices than they're capable of making in the sense that we're projecting emotions onto them when they are not nearly as emotionally complex as we are. Um, so for instance, when people tell me their dogs are angry, we have the talk about, you know, dogs don't experience anger, right? And, and when they tell me that their, you know, their dogs are lonely and all these other things, they do experience emotions to a certain extent. They don't experience them to the same extent that you and I do. And, and that's where if you're coming across a client who is, you know, doing something like that, you're going to have to address it. But I would say the connection to human and, and dog is not necessarily a bad thing. I think sometimes it's very necessary to, to create the, the why for the people to understand. Have you really kind of found a successful way in getting, getting that message through to some people? Because I've had the same discussion. I, I, I don't use really anger or loneliness, but I, I'll say, you know, when somebody's like, oh, my dog loves me or loves my kids or something like that. It, in the same vein, I'm like, well, you know, dogs don't really love, at least not in the sense that we understand love. So how, how do we go about getting this, this message through to somebody that is just convinced that their dog is in love or, or angry or lonely or something like that? You know, it's hard to tell somebody when they love something so much, a pet, you know, in general, it's hard to kind of explain to them, like, as much as you love that dog, 
or as angry as that dog can make you or you're lonely without your dog, that dog is not really feeling the same emotions that you are. And it just, it's some people, it just doesn't connect with them. Yeah. So I like to come from the perspective of the dog. And if we were to to go back to, you know, things that are a little bit more fundamental and, and looking at more of those molar terms, those, those big picture terms. And we're going to talk about drives and instincts and things like that. Dogs drives and instincts prepare them for life in a completely different way than ours do. And theirs are based significantly more upon survival than ours are. Ours are um, yes, we will get to the point of survival, but ours are based on comfort and ours are based on social aspects and ours are based on, you know, a lot of fulfillment and things like that, whereas dogs are more instinctual uh, upon survival. So maybe your dog that loves you the most is getting the most of what it thinks it needs from you, right? So maybe you're the person who provides the food. Maybe you're the person that takes them on walks. Maybe you're the person that plays with them, hunts with them or something like that. And that's why the dog seeks you more than it seeks the other pe people in the household, because you're, you provide more of what is essential for their survival. But other things that can play into it too, is that, you know, dogs hormones can get all out of whack, no different than ours can. Um, so if you become an unhealthy source of oxytocin and you know, that dog is hooked on you, you're just a drug in that sense. Right. And so if we look at it from the dog's perspective, what's going on, you know, as far as genetics go, what's going on from a molar perspective, from a molecular perspective, as far as that associative learning, and we take everything into consideration, we can see that it really isn't about emotion and, and things like that. And that the complexity of emotion really boils down to hormonal states. It boils down to drives. It boils down to survival um, when you look at dogs, whereas human beings are a lot more complex, which it's much harder for a behaviorist to say this is going to explain everything about human behavior, right? Which is why there's so many theories out there because it's extremely hard to describe human behavior because you can describe somebody perfectly and then they go do something totally different Completely than what random. You, totally yeah. random that you weren't expecting, right? But with dogs, I do think that it comes very heavily from, from all of those components and, and really stemming from a survival perspective. Yeah. It kind of goes into, you know, friends, family, you know, how many times something happens on the news or it's newsworthy and, and then their friends and family are left responding like this is so out of character of them. It, it's, you know, people have their certain behaviors and characteristics and, and how we associate them with those elements. And then they'll just go off and do something completely random. But but it's the behavior aspect is, is really fascinating and interesting to kind of explore in all of this because you can really... I, we can put our emotions on our dogs in every kind of situation. And then conversely, you, you can have the person that applies zero emotion to a situation. And it's just like, well, my dog is going to do this because I said it, right? It's going to be a very obedient dog. And, and then that's how we're going to develop a relationship. And there's really no give and take. There is no kind of working relationship with that dog. And I think anybody, especially listening to this podcast, they care on some degree or level of having that good, healthy working relationship with that dog. And that's what we're after. And so this is something that I have found to be challenging in my own, my own experience with my own dogs is like, I do appreciate a good, obedient dog, I, especially inside the house, especially around kids. But how do we balance that obedient requirement 
of our dogs while not suffocating or suppressing their instinct to hunt on the back end, right? Obedience is we're out there, we're training for it, but I have seen it even within one of my dogs, particularly, uh, listeners know Lucy, my small Munsterlander. I, I really went heavier on the obedience earlier on, but I think it took something away from her in the field. And so like, how do we kind of really go about processing that or balancing it? Yeah, I think that, you know, it, it comes down to the relationship and what you have to put into obedience is going to be uh, totally correlated to the relationship that you have with the dog. So the more of a relationship you create, meaning that you are that benevolent leader, you, you provide for them, you advocate for them, you coach them, you discipline them when necessary, you fulfill their needs, you satisfy their drives, et cetera. You are that person teaching obedience happens in the blink of an eye. I mean, that dog is more than happy to do everything that you say. It's more than happy to take on that constructive criticism from you. But when you start a dog, maybe it's because you started too early or it's because you haven't put in the, the extra legwork to build a relationship or you're disinterested in putting in the legwork for the relationship. You're going to wind up having to be significantly heavier handed uh, to, to get the obedience that you're looking for, but also you're going to have to micromanage the dog's obedience for much longer in order to get the results that you want. And there's always that more of that what if, um, if the dog finds something more valuable than you, which they definitely will because you haven't created the valuable uh, value, but what happens when that dog sees your punishment as ineffective anymore because they will reach that point eventually where they're like I don't know you correct me for everything all the time right I'm just going to wind up just kind of doing what I want to do and you get a dog that's more frustrated more difficult to control more difficult to coach and if they're not living from command to command to command they have zero interest in you right they, they don't they're not attentive to you and none of those things so um, when I'm giving this example to my clients I I say um I heard a, a psychologist say this the other day, and I think it's amazing, but they said rules without relationship create rebellion. And I give this example and I say, imagine that you parked in a handicapped spot because you were late for work and you just parked in the handicapped spot and you, you ran inside and a complete stranger came in the building and just screamed at you and chewed you out for parking in the handicapped spot. We as human beings, our, our first natural response is probably to get defensive, right? Well, you're not handicapped. You're not using it. How dare you talk to me? Like, you know, you don't have any right to tell me what to do. That's usually our first instinct, right? But if great aunt Lucy, somebody you love and you care about came in and said, honey, why'd you park in the handicapped spot? You know, you can't do that kind of thing, right? You shouldn't be doing that. You're going to go, oh man, just hit me right in the heart that you, you said I shouldn't <laughs> be doing that. I'm going to go move my car right now because great aunt Lucy has the relationship and her criticism to you matters significantly more than the person on the street corner that happened to see you park there. Right. Um, so with, with my own program, um, I'll do an eight week board and train and I probably spend like three days on obedience. And by the time I have a phenomenal relationship with the dog, it just, it takes off like wildfire. I mean, it is so, so easy to teach and the dog is thrilled to do it um, because it's not pressured, it's not forced. It's somebody who's loving them, who's provided everything for them, for them saying, hey, let's do this together. And the dog's like, no problem, right? Um, so I think the relationship highly, highly correlates to 
how firm you have to be in your training. Um, and I also think it highly correlates to how much drive you're going to wind up taking out of that dog, right? Um, because if you're really, really heavy handed, uh, which I understand sometimes a firm correction is completely necessary, but if you're really heavy handed throughout the entire uh, training program, you're going to wind up creating frustration. You're going to wind up creating anxiety. You're going to wind up creating all sorts of other issues. And those are the things that predominantly reduce drive. And when we look at the hormonal component of it, you know, lots of corrections, lots of heavy handed, lots of criticism spikes cortisol and cortisol is the primary hormone that's going to dump your serotonin. It's going to dump your dopamine. It's going to dump your oxytocin. And these are the things that the dogs are seeking in those working components. They're like, I want to feel high, right? I want to feel high. I want to feel amazing. But if there's constant cortisol, they might feel amazing. And then it plummets, right? And if we keep plummeting all of those other hormones, eventually that drive for those hormones and that, you know, that joy that comes along with doing these tasks, it's going to eventually go down and it's going to be overcome with frustration. And that's when we get working relationships that are not very fun. Yeah. Would you say it's fair to also use this same line of thinking in the opposite to where maybe you're too firm handed over here, you're constantly correcting and the dog is just like, Oh, what now? As opposed to the person that is constantly, you know, the always with a treat, always oh, with a yeah. hot dog to where it's <laughs> oh, just yeah. like, it's nothing but good, 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 good. And Definitely, then you give your, yeah. give the dog just one look out of the side of your eye and they just melt because they have no idea how oh, to absolutely. handle a correction. Yeah. I think, I think that's so important. And, and, and this is where maybe from a behavioral perspective, um, I'm able to think outside the box a little bit more because you're dealing with, you know, hunting dogs that are definitely prepared for this genetically. They're, they're going to need some, some boundaries for sure. They're definitely going to need corrections here and there for sure. Um, when it comes to, you know, dealing with more pet dogs, they are significantly more sensitive in a lot of aspects. Uh, so we have to think outside of the box on that. how do we introduce correction? Because in the dog world, it tends to be very black and white. Correction is, you know, e-collar correction, leash correction, something like that. And with pet dogs, there's a lot of variability to that because many dogs, um, you know, either digress with corrections like that, or they improve, or they mean nothing to them, right? We have a lot of dogs that come in that corrections mean absolutely nothing. It's just those corrections mean nothing. So we have to introduce, you know, boundaries and respect of space and challenges through play. We have to create um, challenges over food. We have to create boundaries and respect at, you know, doorways and all these other types of things to help the dog understand what correction is in a more holistic approach. So no, you can't just blindly correct dogs left and right for stuff. And you can't just, you know, we call it the treat master 5,000. So it's just like this big <laughs> shotgun that just blasts treats out. Um, you can't do that either. So, you know, we don't use any treats in our training. Um, we use the dog's daily meal and even that is not used in the typical context that a lot of people would think. We're not doing a lot of repetitions here and there, but the dog's absolutely going to learn. You don't, you don't push my hand for the food. You don't jump on me for the food. You're going to learn that when you're calm and relaxed, good things come to you and I provide for you, right? They're going to learn those boundaries and those criticisms along the way. So um, it's definitely a healthy balance. I do believe that dogs need to feel successful and feel, feel rewarded. I also do know that they need to be corrected as well. 
And sometimes both of those things look a little different than traditional, you know, treat master 5,000 and then high level correction, right? There's a lot in between that we can, we can work through, especially when it comes to pet dogs. Yeah. It's like everything in life. There's a balance to it, right? You know, if you're correcting a dog that truly has no idea the expectations or you've failed to teach them what you're wanting and you just start correcting them and like think that they're going to figure it out through process of elimination, you know, that's where I I try and explain to people specifically in my own family, like dogs aren't going to just logically deduce that we want them to do this because we didn't allow them to do that like you kind of have to show them then you can correct them and uh you know i'm with you i don't use treats i don't use training treats or hot dogs or any of that stuff but i'll use their kibble and i'll just kind of take it out of their their daily uh ration and so like but i only do that when i'm teaching them like to where i'm really wanting them to progress and learn and then once that's learned i phase that out to, to I don't know if that's even should be phased out completely maybe I should sprinkle it in on occasion I, I'm interested in your thoughts on that but you know I try and get out of the dog food phase as fast as possible because when I'm in the field I don't want to be carrying around a pocket full of dog food or treats for the dog I just want the learned behavior to be the learned behavior and then I have that standard or expectations to where then I will correct them but that's kind of where I see a lot of dogs to, well, they're happy to learn it and they're, they're enthusiastic. And then you go in the field and the second that you give them a correction, it's kind of like they just melt down. And I'm talking about maybe the slightest correction to where like they didn't, it was, it wasn't over, overhanded or, or, Mm -hmm. or just too much. It's kind of like, correct me if I'm wrong, like this should have been going back to the relationship developed over time at a younger age, whether, you know, getting that dog just comfortable and knowing that the correction isn't the end of the world and you can, you can do it and and get your point across without them just shutting down. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the major flaws with working with food. Um, I think there's a lot of flaws with working with food, but one of the major ones is that, well, there's several. If we start one, you can't carry on your, your training sessions as long as they need to be to create the elasticity in the mind to create the endurance that the dog needs because the dog's going to be satiated before you've really reached the level that you need to reach, right? So we've got the the dog becoming satiated. Another thing that's extremely challenging when working with food is offering constructive criticism and getting the dog to bounce back in a healthy way. It's really hard to do with food. Um, And a much healthier option for introducing correction and criticism would be through play. Um, So getting that dog tugging, um, getting that dog playing in a much healthier way, because there's so many conversations that you can have in a tug game and you can get that dog so comfortable with constructive criticism that when they go out in the field, they say no problem. Right. But with food, really difficult to have those conversations. So you're essentially taking this you know, this peewee player and putting them into this kind of major league and giving them the major league criticism when they're not prepared for that. But play can incorporate a lot, a lot better results in the end. And um, the last thing that uh, I kind of lost my train of thought. The last thing that I would say that people struggle with with food is that it doesn't light up the brain very much. So you're working with food and there is, you know, myelination, there is neural pathways, there's connections going on. Not much of the brain lights up with food. When you play, 
you're getting significantly more fluctuations in hormones, especially those happy hormones. Um, you're getting much higher fluctuations, but on top of that, significantly more of the brain lights up. So you're not only getting a dog that's more on fire for this, more willing to take constructive criticism and start learning that in a better way, but you also get that endurance because you can make a play game start lasting longer and longer and longer and having really good conversations with that. And all of that you can carry out onto the field with you. So I think tug is a phenomenal game. I think everybody should be doing it with their dog. I like it significantly more than I like fetch or anything like that. Fetch is a lot harder to have conversations with, right? With a tug, you're down in the nitty gritty. You're in that dog's face. You're challenging them for resources and things like that. With tug or with ball, I mean, with fetch, I mean, they're dropping it at your feet and you're throwing it again, right? And, and fetch tends to almost... If you do it too much and you don't do it with any rules or boundaries or any drive changes in it, it can almost create a neurotic dog on your part, which leads to anxiety and all sorts of other issues. So uh, most, you know, sporting dogs, most working dogs will get into a decent tug game. Um, and so I highly recommend that. And it's going to it's going to change your your whole training, you know, whole training uh, setup significantly for the better over food. Why is it usually form or function when it comes to shotguns? You either hear about the looks or craftsmanship of this shotgun, while that shotgun over there in the corner hasn't been cleaned in two seasons, but supposedly fits and shoots like a dream. Why can't it be both? This is what Upland Gun Company does. They take your own personal measurements and will construct the very shotgun that should handle like a dream while getting you the looks and custom features that only you can decide on. Whether it's a side-by-side -side or over-under, English stock or full pistol grip, custom engravings such as your dog's portrait, even down to selecting the wood grain on your stock. Head on over to UplandGunCompany.com and build the dream gun that you would carry in the field with your dog for many seasons. Last fall, I made the change to a Final Rise Summit System vest and was blown away with not only the customization and durability, but the overall functionality. I can honestly say my setup directly impacted how many miles I covered because the design eliminates shoulder fatigue and discomfort while still providing the perfect amount of storage. I appreciate the waist belt design so much that in the training season I removed the straps and swapped the game bag out for the sidekick system game bag and I now have the perfect training belt set up for the long and hot training season. Go to FinalRise.com and check out all the available options that are all sourced and sewn right here in the USA. There's there's a number of different ways I want to go with this, so just kind of bear with me because th this kind of brings in a whole bunch of different aspects in the hunting side of things because when you bring up tug, I guarantee you, you just sent a shutter down a lot of people's spine. Because they, the they don't community. they don't want to uh, get the the hard mouths on the dogs. Right, hard mouths chewing up the birds and and stuff like that. There, I do know personally a number of successful hunting dog trainers that utilize tug, and it's not foreign to this podcast. I've had a number of people recommend that, but. I, I want to start with the drive piece because you, you bring up the retrieve, right? To where maybe it's kind of impersonal. You're sending the dog away from you and, and you're not really having that level of communication or contact that you would have with tug. But I'm interested, would you say that because some of the dogs that we use back to the genetic uh, behaviors and drives in these dogs, some of our dogs have a much higher propensity or desire to retrieve than others. So like this is, I'm thinking of not even, not even retrieving my setter. One thing that I learned with her really early on is she just loves to be released, whether that's from a place command, you know, she's on her bed, out of her kennel, whatever. 
And so instead of using a, a retrieve or tug or anything like that, I learned that as soon as I got the result from her, I could release her and it would stick with her. And then I could just extend the duration. You could do the same thing with retrieve to where I know a lot of people, I think Jordan Horak from Cato Outdoors does this. As soon as you get the result you want from the dog, you throw the ball. And, and they go get the ball and bring it back. Uh, it's the same thing as the tug, but would you say that if the retrieve is that high of a level of a reward for that dog, that it could be just as powerful as maybe something closer and more personal such as tug? I don't, I can't say, because I'm not a hunting dog trainer, but what I can say is, as far as the holistic relationship goes with the handler, you can't have nearly as many conversations with a game of fetch that you can in a game of tug. So for instance, let's say I'm going to come from a behavioral perspective here because this is what I deal with on a daily basis. Let's say that you have a dog, a dog that's got really high prey drive and he's constantly attacking and hunting other dogs because of it, right? Chasing it down, attacking it. They enjoy the fight, right? You can throw a ball all day long and never once satisfy the fight in that dog but you can fight over a tug. You can fight hard, right? And then you put that dog next to other dogs and they're way more chill, but you can ball with them to death and they'll still attack another dog, right? So satisfying the fight is something that we can do with tug. In addition to that, if you have dogs that are resource guarders, dogs that um, don't handle sharing resources very well, dogs that are maybe scared of you when it comes to resources or dogs that are feeling like they can be more dominant towards you with resources. Those are all conversations you can have right there in a tug game, right? And as far as introducing constructive criticism, it's a lot harder to do in a game of fetch, I believe, um, because there's not that much to give constructive criticism over other than bolting for the, the ball outside of what you've said is okay. But with tug, we can have a lot more constructive criticism on a lot more different things. Where you bite, how you bite, um, how you get into my space, how hard you push, how soft you are. There's so many things that we can give into um, on that. So I feel like uh, uh, fetch is engaging very, very heavily, heavily in that dopamine production, right? Which is valuable, which can get your dog through a lot of different things and teach a lot of amazing behaviors. But as far as for the relationship between handler and dog, I think tug is significantly more holistic than that actual game of fetch. And, and ultimately that's all we're trying to do in a reward based scenario such as this is, is reach that dopamine level because we've all seen dogs where you just previously mentioned that food isn't, isn't the best option for that reaching that dopamine. That's true in us. It's been proven to where you get that slice of cake after, after dinner after that second bite, we don't even care about it as much. We just keep consuming it because we ordered it. But after that second bite, it loses its value. But there are some dogs that food doesn't do anything for them. There's some dogs that wouldn't care at all about a, a thrown ball for them. Uh, and, you know, you have to find people ask, what's the best reward for my dog? And it's like, well, it really kind of depends on, on your, your dog. dog. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm interested to hear your take is... If I have a dog, let's use the example you just gave that that they want to chase down and attack, or maybe they want to fight over or or just play tug of war over a, a resource, an item. If you do get into the tug with them, is that not perpetuating it? Is that not reinforcing it or even encouraging that behavior? So I um, 
you know, I'm a believer in the, the molar perspective that dogs are, are, you know, inherently bred with drives inside them. Um, I think that a lot of people coming, especially from a working world would believe that that's a, you know, part of a, a makeup of dogs. You know, it, we talk about prey drive, but there are other drives in there as well. There's, you know, pack drive and defense drive. They're there all the time. And so if we say that satisfying something like fight, which could be very just deep within prey drive, or it could be stemming all the way over into defense drive, which is our fight, flight, or freeze. If we're saying that, you know, engaging in any of these activities is perpetuating the problem, well, it kind of goes against what we're saying as far as they're designed this way, right? There's always going to be a fight component. There's always gonna be a flight component. There's always gonna be prey drive. There's always gonna be pack drive, it's in them. Um, you know, to, to say that we are somehow making it worse is silly because it's already there, right? So if we are going to address anything, we would want to satisfy what's already there so that they can function in the situations that we want them to around other dogs, around children, et cetera. And, and that's really what we work on here in the behavioral component. You're not going to get prey drive out of your dog. You, you can correct it all you want. You can reward it all you want. It, if your dog has a lot of prey drive, it's not going away but let's teach them how to satisfy it in a healthy way and make sure that those outlets are there for them. So that when you go walk down the, the street and the squirrels and the cats are running by, they're like, whatevs, I know I'm going to go have my fulfillment in a little while, or we just had my fulfillment. I'm feeling great. Right. And that's how we get around it. It isn't about nurturing or denying it's the stuff's there all the time. So if we fulfill it and we care for the dog and we actually take care of their instincts and genetics, we don't run into nearly as many behavioral problems. And it kind of goes back to if you are having a prey drive issue with a dog and then you're constantly just trying to correct it and maybe using that e-collar, maybe just climbing up the, the level of pressure up and up and up, that's where you start getting that dog that we were talking about earlier to where they, they almost resent you almost. It, it's going to suffer on that relationship or, or create a really anxious, uneasy dog that's just not comfortable in the situation. Yeah, or, or it can go in a whole different direction where it's a dog that becomes more and more desensitized to correction. They, they care less and less and less about it. You get a dog that's more and more frustrated and then you start getting a dog who's acting out on that frustration. Um, so in working dog sports, you'll get dogs who refuse to let go of what they have, right? And the more that you tell them to let go, the harder they bite. And the more that you correct them to let go, the harder they bite. Um, you can get that in any dog where they see your coaching or even your criticism as something that is creating conflict and it actually fuels them in the wrong direction. So you can get dogs that shut down, they lose their drives and all sorts of things, but it, you can get dogs that fuel in the wrong direction as well. And both are equally as unproductive. You just sparked a, a thought in my head to where I immediately thought of 10, 15, 20 plus dogs that I'm familiar with that developed a very embedded hatred for porcupines to where the correction is literally built up into that experience and introduction to that animal. You don't even have to have the owner or handler hit them with an e-collar, but it's just like some dogs will get brushed by a porcupine and they don't ever want anything to do with it again. Other dogs, they get a mouthful of them and it's kind of like you put, drop them on the ground and you just know that German dog is going right after that first porcupine that it finds. And it's just, that's how you come away with dogs that have been hit by, you know, 10, 15 porcupines over the course of their sure. life. Sure. 
Sure. Yeah. It, you just have to read, read the dog in front of you. I usually find that if the dog is shutting down, uh, we missed something along the way in, in, in terms of the relationship. And if we're getting a dog that is getting frustrated or getting desensitized or challenging us, uh, more when we are trying to give constructive criticism, we're missing something in the relationship too. Um, it shouldn't be that difficult, even with higher drive dogs, even with dogs that, you know, people say have no motivation, you know, you've got bulldogs and stuff like that. And people say they have no motivation. If we're in a position where everything feels like conflict, then something is, something is wrong with the relationship. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm reminded of, uh, I haven't spoken to him personally. It was just a podcast episode that my buddy Bob Owens at Lone Duck did sometime last year with Pat Nolan. I don't know if you're familiar with with Pat, but they did an episode on working within drive. And so it's like you kind of take that drive, you put a magnifying glass on it, you build it, and then you operate within it. And because that dopamine level and that reward level is so high, anything that you do with that dog in that moment is going to mean – 10 times more than if you're just trying to bully quote unquote a dog into the behavior. And so that's essentially kind of what we're talking about is identifying the primary drive within your dog and not trying to suppress it, but just operate within it to where if you do have a dog with a high drive, prey drive specifically, that you want, maybe you don't want them chasing, like you said, that rabbit or squirrel or something, but you've kind of watered it down or oversaturated it by the play at home, you can kind of correct that issue while operating within that drive and you're not really suppressing it out in the field. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the way that I do it here, cause I deal with, I deal with lots of high drive dogs here. Um, I, ha- I have a Malinois and two German shepherds. So, um, you know, their drives are through the roof all the time. And the way that we kind of address it, the problem with, you know, spiking the dopamine really high, I guess there's no inherent problem with that. But if you're coming from the perspective of a dog that's going from kennel to high drive dopamine to kennel to high drive dopamine to kennel to high drive drive dopamine, what happens is that you start creating that dopamine junkie, which isn't I mean, all that bad in working dog sports, uh, unless you're getting to the point where it's turning into anxiety, which happens often. But with these dogs, you, because you're creating a dopamine junkie, what happens over time is that that high level of dopamine starts to feel like the normal level of dopamine because it's happening so often. And then when you put the dog in the crate or doing what you're trying to do, bringing the dog into your home, everything else feels like a low. So you get anxious behaviors, you get dogs that can't settle, you get dogs that can't shut off unless they're in command, right? So we're always relying on obedience over and over and over again. We got to put the dog on a bed. We've got to tell the dog to down. The dog has to sit over here or something like that. And they can't just be because we've turned that dog on. We've left them on. We've created this excess of dopamine to the point where that feels normal. And then everything else feels like a low, which is kind of what I believe people were doing way back in the day with the, they only go out on the field for an hour a day and then they're in their crate and then they're out on the field is they were enjoying that dynamic. But now we have people like you who are trying to bring dogs into their homes and they're struggling with behavioral issues. They're struggling with, you know, anxiety issues. They're struggling with a dog that can't settle and things like that. So I'm a big fan of throwing that dog into drive, getting that dog super hot and heavy during that training session. 
I'm also a really big fan of shutting that dog off completely at the end of that training session. And I do not believe that it, it kills drive or anything like that. So for instance, let's say that I pull my Malinois out. He's ball psycho. He's toy psycho, tug <laughs> psycho. He will break. He has broken through walls to get to whatever is on the other side. Okay. Um, so with him, if I do a really nice, satisfying tug session with him, he can outstand, outlast me. He can go for days and days and days and I'll be exhausted and he won't be. But there has to come a time where the game is over. The game is done. And I leave all of the equipment out. I leave everything out. So this is something that I, I would think that hunters could do as well. I'm sure you have plenty of equipment and, and tools that you're using. But I leave everything out. I leave all the toys out. I leave the food out. I leave whatever it is that we were working on. It's all there right? And I walk the dog through all of those things. And I say, all done, right? Over and over and over again, I pull them away from those things. All done, all done, all done, all done, all done. As we sit there and we sit together in the presence of the end of that session, we turn everything off, we rest. And sometimes that'll be a half hour, hour, depending on how long it takes the dog to cycle down. And then we go home, then we go into the home with children, then we do all of those other things. It doesn't make him any less sporadic, psycho, absolutely nuts for the next tug session. It just means that he shuts off completely. So he's not carrying that prey drive into the home. And he's not starting to think that those high level of dopamine, uh, that high level of dopamine needs to come in every aspect of life. It doesn't, right? And that's where practicing a little bit of that pack drive at the end can be very valuable, but it doesn't really take away much from the prey drive in the moment. As long as you have a highly prey driven dog. If you didn't have a dog with much drive at all, maybe, but if you had a highly prey driven dog, it's not going to put a single dent into them. Yeah. It, it's again, I have 15 different questions kind of going through my head. So I'll, I'll kind of wade through this while you're describing this. I hear, you know, toys everywhere, just getting the dog used to, you know, I use the leave it command, uh, whether, you know, sometimes it's, it's obeyed a little bit better than other times as well. But I use the leave it command, but I'm, I'm reminded of, we preach very often, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. So if we're talking about that dog that we don't want interacting with toys or just anything around the house, what, you know, how do we balance that out to where like, we don't even want to put them in that situation, but then exposing them or introducing them enough to where it, that there's no level of reward for them. Does that make sense? Right. So this is a really good um, question and something that we, we do in our programs. Um, so as far as our all done cue, we look at all done as a mindset. We don't look at all done as necessarily a command to leave this alone, to leave that alone. It's, it's, we're resting now. It's a resting mindset. Um, so we have our dogs starting our board and train. They're all about a week and a half in two weeks. They've all been working on the all done for two weeks now. And Whenever we finish walking them and we come in and we decompress, we sit together, we say all done. We associate that with massage. We get the dogs laying on their side, really shutting off, closing their eyes, and we condition that with all done, all done, all done, all done. So we're incorporating it in many different circumstances. And then it's not until about the third week of our program that we actually start touching on prey drive in any capacity. And then we're carrying over what we worked on in pack drive. We're carrying it over into our prey drive sessions and able to capitalize a little bit on the mindset that we've been creating around that phrase and being able to apply it a little bit to that toy. So it's not hitting them, you know, out of left field is something that we've been working on in a lot of other contexts, which helps those real high drive dogs shut off 
in different contexts as well, because if you're just randomly saying that and offering a bunch of corrections, it can it can be hard. It can be just kind of the same thing that everybody else is doing already, uh, but trying to carry that mindset over and then using that um, can be very valuable. Another thing that came to mind was, do you put any stock in the thought process that we shouldn't allow our dogs to determine or dictate when we have a session, whether that's a play session, training session, I'm thinking of the dog that just brings you a ball. And then, you know, what do a lot of people do? They just grab the ball and throw it. Right. Well, that's just reinforcing and, and telling the dog like, hey, whenever you want to bring me the toy, I'm going to engage with you and give you exactly what you want. So then you end up with this dog that a thousand times a day is bringing you this ball or toy. Uh, and, but some people swear it, it doesn't matter. It's just, it kind of goes into the genetics and, and what that dog's wanting. I'm kind of interested in, in your take and, and does this training, the, the all done stuff around the house, the satiating the prey drive with tug, does that kind of loses it, its value if you're letting the dog determine when and where you do this? Oh, it, it definitely, definitely does. And so from a behavioral perspective, if I saw that the dog already has plenty of drive, I wouldn't give in to that, that pushy behavior. I would decide when we're going to play. Um, I would decide when we're going to shut off and all of that sort of stuff. If I had a dog that wasn't really into it, that was more cautious, more tentative, maybe concerned about playing with me and is starting to show some of these behaviors, I would absolutely take them up on that and be like, okay, you're ready to go. Let's do this. Cause we need this for you to, to grow. But if I had a a dog that's already got the genetic base, that's already proven to have the drive. I'm not going to give in to every every single time that they do that because that's the dog acting and you reacting. That's the dog leading and you following. We don't really want to set that precedent. Um, but on top of that, though, even a working dog, like I said, we deal we deal with tons of them. Um, you know, even with working dogs, if you are allowing them to constantly be stimulated throughout the day, you're going to wind up with an anxious working dog. No different than with human beings. I'm extremely driven. I'm extremely type A. I'm extremely driven. I'm working all of the time. If I let it get away from me, which it will, if I don't put a cap on it, I can't sleep at night, right? I can't sleep at night, not because anything's bothering me, but because my brain is way too stimulated throughout the day. I'm doing a hundred different things all the time and I can't shut off right? Your dog is going to wind up being the same thing. So the brain body nervous system starts to fray. Their genetics are only going to help so much on top of all of that bombardment throughout the day. And you're going to get a dog that's distracted in the field. You're going to get a dog that is uh, more jumpy with correction. You're going to get a dog that is, you know, more sporadic in the things that you ask them to do. They're going to be less focused. So I think that letting them just constantly do that. I think of it as just ping pong balls in their head all day long. I'd rather bring that ping pong ball out and have it be the only ping pong ball that they're focused on during that training session, rather than those balls bouncing around all day long in their head, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if I, I'm similar to you, you can't shut your brain off. You can't sleep. You can't, you can't fully relax. Yeah. And if you're constantly, I mean, to me, I think this is, you know, I, we talk about the dangers of social media and everybody's lives now because you're constantly distracted. You're constantly tuned into that phone. Yeah. So what, what happens when you finally put it down? You can't relax because yeah. you've just, I mean, you've just literally consumed 
hours and even hundreds of hours worth of content that we just genetically and, and biologically aren't supposed to consume that fast. Yeah. And, uh, so dogs are dogs are the same way. You bring up anxiety and and this is a touchy subject and I know like we can't really we can't really wrap anxiety and dogs up into a nice complete package especially not in one episode because it's it's holistic like you've been describing this entire episode. Uh, what are some of the signs of a truly anxious dog because I think a lot of people I know that you can probably combine anxiety and anxiousness into fear or something like that but like how is as us as owners distinguishing the difference between a dog that is confused versus anxious versus afraid and i know that they all have a little overlap and a little bleed over but can you kind of kind of just touch on that a little bit yeah there there definitely is overlap um in a lot of a lot of those things but they are their own specific things so fear is fear of something specific. Your dog is afraid of gunshots. Your dog is afraid of thunderstorms. Your dog is afraid of the car. Your dog is afraid of dad. Your dog is afraid of the baby. Your dog's afraid of whatever, right? Very, something very specific. Anxiety is the fear of the unknown. So these are the what if dogs. Well, what if somebody comes in that door? Well, well, what if you did this? And, and, and what if we happen to see a dog out on the walk? Like, what if we see a dog? Like, what if a dog comes up on us while we're walking, right? Those are your anxious dogs. There's, there is nothing. There is no threat in the moment, but your dog is jumpy, right? Your dog is nervous and jumpy. That's anxiety, right? No different than with people. I can be afraid of water. It doesn't mean that I'm paranoid every time that I go outside the door. It just means I'm afraid of water, right? Or I'm afraid of spiders or something like that. But you have people that are genuinely afraid about everything. They're afraid of the unknown. And when people are the most anxious, it's when there's more unknown factors. So they don't know where they stand with their spouse or they don't know where their next paycheck has come from. They don't know where their kids are, right? It's the what ifs that start going. So when we allow dogs to run the ship, and kind of do things willy-nilly and they don't have the structure that they need, they don't have the clear guidance that they need, that's where the unknown factors really start to come in on top of the excess of dopamine, right? Where everything else feels like a low. And just like you said, we put our phone down, which is constant dopamine, right? We put it down and dopamine doesn't linger. It doesn't like carry over for, we don't feel great. It's done. The moment you put your phone down, it's done. You're like, this doesn't feel normal, right? I feel like I have to do something to get a dopamine hit again. So we pick up our phone again and we scroll again, right? Well, it's the same thing with our dogs. They sit there and say, well, this is this feels uncomfortable, right? Now, now I'm going to get all jittery. And it's like, what is that sound? I didn't even notice that sound, right? And that dopamine starts to become that distraction and something that they seek out. So I would say the more compartmentalized you make their life, right? The more coaching that you give them and things like that. And it doesn't have to be, you have to sit and you have to down and you have to do all these other things, but teaching the dog, the choices that they have available to them, the options that they have, right? If you're anxious or something like that, you're fearful. You have the option of checking in with me. You have the option of going and laying on your bed. You do not have the option to flip out and go crazy just because the dryer kicked on or something like that. Right. Um, So I think that, if you have a dog that seems anxious, seems fear of the unknown, seems generally jumpy over just nothing, like there's really no imminent threat to them, um, those are dogs that I would give 
a lot more structure to really show them, okay, when this sound goes off, you have the options to do A, B, and C, right? Not necessarily this sound goes off, I'm gonna tell you to sit, right? That doesn't necessarily compute as far as behavior goes um, and things like that. And then you can really start helping the dog get to a better spot and less anxious on top of make sure you're regulating the dorm dopamine throughout the day. And, and this kind of steers into what one of the, uh, one, one of the lessons or videos that you did that, that really kind of made me decide I wanted to reach out to you that kind of struck a chord was, you know, we want to teach our dogs to think rather than obey. Right. And, and that why, especially in the hunting dog community, I'm sure that it's, outside just any of the dog community is guilty of this. We're kind of taught to where, again, the the prevention is worth more than the cure is if we don't want an, uh, an undesirable action from our dog to go put them on a place command, to have them sit, to go in their kennel, something like that. But you, you were addressing that we would rather have a dog that is more comfortable in the environment, can look to you for leadership and can kind of operate within whatever's going on. Say somebody's just coming through the door, because if you give your dog a sit command, then you're automatically removing the the flight option from their, their world. And so if somebody's coming up to them after you've given them the sit or place, you're kind of inviting an opportunity for a reaction from that dog. Can you kind of speak into more of this? Because I think it kind of falls in line with what you're just talking about. Yeah. Um, so it, it isn't necessarily that I'm against obedience. It's, uh, more necessarily, I'm more against traditional obedience for, any type of dog is struggling with behavioral issues. And the reason that I'm against that is that it takes away their ability to learn the behavior you actually want them to do. So for instance, let's say that I'm scared of spiders. And every time I see a spider, I scream bloody murder and I try to stab people, okay? Let's say that that <laughs> happens. That's, that's Hope's response. Um, if that's my response and I see a spider, somebody knows that I'm gonna freak out. They say, just sit down just sit down. Right. And then they push me into the chair, sit down. Okay. That doesn't make me any more comfortable with the spider. Doesn't make me any less likely to stab hope. Right. It just made me sit down. <laughs> it just made me sit down. Right. So it doesn't actually solve the problem. It doesn't make me more comfortable with the spider. It doesn't help me understand. Oh, I don't need to stab people. I could, I could just walk away from the spider. Right. Or I could grab a cup and I could scoop the spider up and I could put it outside. Right. There's a million and one things that I could do, but nobody gave me that option. Someone just shoved me in a chair and told me to sit down. Okay. So I don't even know that those options exist. So if we're talking about associative learning being extremely powerful, why not show associative learning with things that make sense? Right. So I deal with lots of aggression cases. That's the predominant uh, type of dogs that we see come in through our programs. And the average dog owner is not a master at dog behavior. They are not a master at dog body language. They're not a master of all of these things. So things definitely slip through the cracks. And if we have a dog that's always re relying on being told to sit in the chair and stay put so you don't stab somebody, what happens when the time comes when that spider presents itself and nobody's there to tell the dog to sit in the chair, right? Then the dog says, well, I don't know anything else. I'm going to have to stab hope right now. Right. I, there's no other option. <laughs> You've been dead like 10 times already. Um, I say hopes in the background, just like, I what know. did I do? Well, I don't have anything against spiders. She's the one who does this kind of stuff <laughs> over spiders. 
anyway, um, but that that's my my way of thinking. So it doesn't mean necessarily that the dog we're telling the dog not to be obedient. I just might tell the dog to do something that's not tradi traditional obedience. And I might try to do it so often that if I were not there, rather than the dog sitting in the chair, the dog might say, well, I can walk into another room. Or the dog might say, you know what? I can, I can go lay down on my bed. Or you know what? You're making me kind of uncomfortable, spider. I'm going to go check in with my mom because my mom's got the best advice, right? And start conditioning those types of behaviors, teaching those dogs to think about the choices that are available to them. Um, you know, the only benefit of having a really strict obedience command is the dog might be less likely to lash out when in the command, if they've been highly corrected for not leaving that command, that doesn't mean they don't want to. And that's where the, the issue gets a little bit sticky because the moment that a, a pet owner, a pet dog owner isn't paying attention, that dog still wants to just as badly as before. And then there is no boundary of a traditional obedience command or anything like that. And so we still run into many problems. So our clients come from all over the world. They've done obedience all over the world. And that dog still bites people. That dog still growls at children. That dog still tries to attack other dogs. And it's something that we have to look at much more critically and say, we can't stay within a box just because that's how they've been doing it for a hundred years. We might have to start thinking outside the box on how to help these dogs better. Well, and I mean, I know that there there's so many what ifs and context missing here, but let's, let's just take a, a, a run of the mill dog in a situation such as coming through the door, let's say you have a dog that isn't fearful or anxious or anything, but they're overly excited. They want, they want to crash into whoever's coming through that door. Yippee, I guess let's jump on them. Let's have fun. How do we present the choices to the dog to where really the only thing that they're looking at is jumping on, on the guests coming through the door? You know, how, how can we redirect them without it being an obedient command? Sure. Um, well, that's where your markers would come in, into play. So if you're not using your markers, uh, those are going to be highly beneficial. We use three predominantly. We've got our success marker, our success marker that's usually associated with reward. We usually don't use that that often. Um, we have our duration marker, which means keep doing what you're doing. And we have our correction marker. Yeah. So we have those three markers. And the way that we use them is we kind of coach the dog on whatever behavior they're presenting to us. So for instance, if I had a dog that I didn't want jumping on the guests anymore. The first thing I would tell my guests is just ignore my dog, please. Okay. Because he's seeking your attention and your attention is part of the problem. I'm going to handle my dog the rest of the time. So if the dog, uh, people come in, my dog tries to jump, I'm going to have a leash on him. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to say, nope, puts his feet down. Good. Right. Those markers have already been conditioned. One means don't do this. The other one means keep doing this, right? You can walk around, you can sniff them. You can go into the other room. You can come check in with me. You just can't jump. Right. And if I put the dog in a sit, they don't know I can't jump. They don't know I can sniff. They don't know, well, I can approach them. I can wag my tail. I can keep my four feet on the floor. They don't know I could go into another room if I actually don't really like this person, right? They don't know I can come check in with you. They don't know any of that. They just know I can sit, right? Does that make sense? So markers are, I, I would think would be hugely valuable. Your leash would be hugely valuable on coaching what it is that you want. Eventually you start dropping your leash and eventually remove your leash altogether. And then your dog says, I can do these 10 things when guests come in. I just can't do this one thing, right? There's no value in me doing this one thing. And then you get a dog that starts thinking what feels best for them at that time when, when a guest comes in and it isn't something you always have to micromanage. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, I want to stay on this kind of specific scenario, getting your thought processes just to, just to some kind of common scenarios that aren't just particularly hunting dog related. But again, we're talking about, you know, your day to day living with and companion and pet dogs. Uh, when we talk about living with the dogs inside the house, some people swear up and down that the worst thing that you can do is have your dog sleep in the bed with you or get up on furniture while other people don't care at all and they don't think that it, it, it has really impact on the dog's understanding of where it lies within the structure of the house. What are your thoughts on this? Um, so I, I think it does play a role in it for sure. And it, it can come from a lot of different perspectives, but I do think it plays a role as far as where your dog understands their place to be within the home, right? So we put boundaries with our children quite often to establish the difference between parent and child. I drive the car. My child does not drive the car, right? I sleep in my bedroom. I sleep in the master bedroom. My child does not. She sleeps in her own bedroom. When I'm taking a shower, I close the door. My child is not, my child's 12. She's not in there taking a shower with me. There is a difference, right? Um, when it comes to, you know, paying the bills, when it comes to making decisions for the family and things like that, there's a definitive line between parent and child as it should be, right? And part of the, the you know, separation is physical, right? Like those areas in the car, those areas in the house, right? There are physical separations which show us what our role is. And the same thing can go with dogs, right? So if we're trying to separate ourselves as leader and follower, right? We're trying to separate ourselves as we are the people who make the choices and you are the ones who are following the choices. If we're sharing all of the same liberties, all of the same physicalities, we're sharing all of the same locations and we're sharing all of the same privileges, et cetera, then we are not that different, right? When we go to coach, when we go to drive the car, the dog's gonna jump in and try to drive the car because that's the, the mentality that we've established, right? Now you have some dogs who couldn't care less about driving the car, right? They couldn't care less about sleeping in the master bedroom and all of these other things the way that a child might. They're not challenging any of those things. I don't care if those dogs are on the couch. I don't care if those dogs are in the bed, right? So if you have a dog that's not challenging you in any way that listens, that's sweet, responsive and, and coachable, who cares? But there's also another end of the spectrum. So you have the dogs that might challenge you more, dogs that are trying to be reactive in your home, be territorial in your home, resource guarding in your home, picking fights with the other dogs. That would all be a really good sign that you're not in the leadership position, right? A dog that is in a leadership position will exhibit these behaviors, but a human in the leadership position with a dog that's in more of a following position won't really have those same issues, right? So on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have people like, well, my dog's as sweet as pie, right? My dog, you know, so gentle and kind and it doesn't do anything, but they're extremely anxious. And now they have separation anxiety. And now they have um, situations where if somebody tries to approach me, they lunge and try to attack them. This is also another dog that is not in the right mindset to share those types of liberties with you. And part of the reason why is that proximity and touch release oxytocin, right? And if you have a dog that is constantly in a state of defense drive, right? You have this highly fearful, anxious, jittery kind of dog. If they're constantly in a state of defense drive and you're releasing oxytocin into a stressed state, 
it makes the dog feel unfulfilled and crave oxytocin even more. So we get these dogs that hook to us, right? In an unhealthy fashion because the oxytocin isn't actually fulfilling them. So they wind up becoming more and more and more desperate for it, grabbing it everywhere we can. So we get separation anxiety. We get more anxious behaviors in public. We get a situation where when the vet tries to take the dog away from you, it absolutely flips out, right? So when we have dogs like that, we definitely want to separate that because the association with touch and proximity is really unhealthy. So sleeping in the bed, laying on the couch with you all day long is constantly pumping this unhealthy oxytocin into the dog, creating somewhat of an addict again with you creating the safe haven effect and all sorts of other issues that are going on, we need to separate that, right? We need to separate that and we need to start implementing touch in a more healthy way. When the dog is in a more balanced state, when the dog is in a healthier mindset, when the dog is more relaxed and incorporating touch that way and incorporating it, not as a nurturing babying type of thing, but incorporating it as we're just sharing an interchange here, right? Good job, pup. I love you. Way to go, right? Sharing things more like that. And, um, creating a healthier association with that touch and proximity. If you get to the point where that dog is doing significantly better, you might try coming back to having the dog in the bed and having the dog on the couch, things like that. But if you're instantly noticing things digress again, it has to go away. So it's not a blanket answer that yes, they can always be up there. And it's not a blanket answer that no, they can't be up there. It has to be something where you're looking at each individual dog and how those liberties are actually changing the dog in front of you. Because I don't know if people are in tune enough with their dogs to see how, how these things connect. Um, especially if they own a dog that's just generally compliant and is generally a good dog. It can be very hard for them when they get the next dog who's resource guarding who is dominating the other dogs, who is, you know, pacing the house, patrolling the windows and the doorways, patrolling the fence line and things like that. It can be hard for them to associate that part of the problem might be that we have elevated them to kind of the same status as us in the home. And they're taking on these more leadership qualities. They're dictating who comes in the home. They're dictating what the other dogs are allowed to do and not do. They're dictating who gets the food, right? They're, they're rationing resources according to how they see fit. That's a sign that the status inside the home is not where it should be. And it's not all about the beds and couches, but that's part of it, right? Just like my parenting isn't all about, you know, the fact that I drive the car or I sleep in the master bedroom. There's a lot more to it, but it is a part right? It is some separation that, that separates parent from child and leader from follower. Right. It, it is a detail. And the, you know, the old saying is the devil's in the details, right? And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, all of that bleeds over into everything else. I'm a firm believer. And and this is why I, I enjoy conversations such as this is all of this relationship building leader versus follower, all of this stuff bleeds over into the field. You know, we, we talk about in the hunting dog community, training the short grass before you go in the long grass. Do it. If you can't do it right here at your feet, you're not going to be able to do it 100 yards away from you. You know, distance erodes control. Well, I believe, take that another step forward. If your dog lives in the household with you and you don't establish these boundaries, if you don't establish the dog waits for you to go through the doorway first, you don't establish you're allowed on the furniture or not, you know, all of this stuff bleeds over and it will show up. It will leak into other aspects of your training to where you may not care about the dog being on the couch, but if you have the wrong personality dog, because you let them on the couch, 
that might show up in some random way down down yeah. the line, whether you know on the force fetch table in the field with steadiness, what what have you. Uh, but it all starts with let's do the easy stuff, the day to day stuff. You're in your house. Let's take advantage of the opportunities that that your dog's giving you. Yeah, yeah. Each each one of those things is a grain of sand in the right direction or the wrong direction. That it, uh, it's not always noticeable immediately, but it all adds up. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that, that really, if somebody has never really utilized crate training effectively and they've never really seen a dog that has been trained and comfortable within their crate, it is very hard to kind of get through to them just the value of that quote unquote safe space for, for their dog, their den, if you will. Can you touch on the importance of, or for somebody trying to decide to crate train or not to crate train their dog. And and this is where I come back to, you know, those associations with, with people or kids. This is one of those situations where we might have to draw that association because people have a really hard time seeing outside of their own species. And, you know, if you read books on behavior, you read books on animals and things like that, they say that dogs are, are as human beings, are our last connection to nature. We don't connect to nature at all. I mean, we're terrible at it now. And dogs are our last connection. And we so misunderstand them because our whole life is just a tidal wave of human emotion and human thought and things like that. So it's really hard to crack through. So when I discuss crate training with people, I describe it no different than putting your baby in a crib, right? So when your baby needs to, to lie down and nap and rest, you don't lay them in the middle of the floor. You don't put them on the coffee table. You don't, you know, you don't do any of those things, right? When your child, when maybe you can't always keep an eye on them when you're going to work, or maybe the kids are running around and your dog is trampling all over them or something like that. When you want to keep your baby safe, you put them in a crib, you put them in a bassinet, you put them in a stroller or something like that, that contains them and confines them, right? So when you call me and you say, man, my dog keeps chewing up the electrical cords in the house when I go to work. They're digging through the blinds. They dug out the backyard and escaped and animal control got them, but I don't want to use a crate. Well, when your kid sticks their fingers in the light sockets and gets electrocuted because you don't want to use the crib or the bassinet or the stroller, that's on you, right? So it is definitely about safety, but it is about that downtime too and creating that space for downtime. No different than you know, what they talk about with our own bedrooms. It's your bedroom shouldn't have TVs in it and your console in it and your workout equipment in it and everything else and your library in it and all those things. Your bedroom should be for sleeping, right? Because if we have a million other things that happen during that time, then it can be really hard for our brain to shut off in that environment. Well, same thing with our dogs. If our dogs are trying to rest and decompress where everything else happens, where the toy box is, where the food dish is, where the kids are running around, they don't actually rest and get the, the regeneration that they need. They need that separate area where they can shut off. And this is the area where they shut off and they're safe. So no different than we would provide to a child, no different than we would provide to a baby those correlations sometimes need to be made. And I, I usually find that most people have an aha moment when, when kind of creating that association. Yeah. It's, it's so hard when you, you do this much more than I do talking to people in the pet dog community and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, the hunting dog community has, has the people that are just like, Oh my God, I can't put my dog in a crate. Look how small it is or something like that. But to your point, like, 
with dogs being kind of the last touch of nature for the average person in the hunting dog community we don't really have that problem because we are going out into nature you know mm-hmm. that's what we love and and it's kind of more like we have a partner in crime or a, or just our buddies going with us but crate it is so hard not to look at the people that that don't grasp it and just it's one of the topics that I have the hardest time not just kind of talking down to somebody at. So to your point, it seems so simple of putting a baby in a crib. Like, you know, it, stuff like that is just kind of like, guys, you're you're pissed off and worried what you're going to come home to every single day from work. So you're creating anxiety and, and this mindset to where you're afraid to go in your own house. Yeah. More so than you're afraid to put a dog in a crate. It doesn't yeah. make any sense to me. Well, and if I have somebody that, that that's having a hard time making the connection and somebody who's very emotionally attached to their dogs or projecting a lot of emotion onto their dog, I come from the dog's perspective and I say, okay, well, let's imagine what your dog's life was like at home when it destroyed all of this stuff. Was it anxious? Probably. Was it fearful? Probably. Was it underfulfilled and under-exercised? Probably, Right. So if we have a dog that's giving you all of these signs saying, I, I need more exercise, I need more stimulation, I need more connection with you, real connection, not just cuddling on the couch for five hours watching Netflix, I need real connection with you. Hey, I've got anxiety, I need somebody to start putting some rules and structure. I mean, I need somebody to start telling me how it is because I feel like I'm just in a shapeless cloud right now floating out into space, right? When you start explaining to them what their dog is experiencing and that they're the only one that can help, then they start going, wow, I had no idea that my dog was feeling. I don't want my dog to feel like that. I love my dog, right? And then they start getting some more aha moments coming from that perspective. And then, of course, you have people who refuse to listen to anything, that refuse to understand anything, and that they think that their dogs are great and their dogs are highly, highly dissatisfied and and struggling Um, and that's, unfortunately, those are broken people and those are people that are projecting broken things onto those dogs. And I feel bad for that, but you and I can't always change that. What, what about the people that will do the crate for a year or two, everything's going great. And then, you know, it's that whole, my dog earned its freedom mentality, right. To where I come from the, the school of thought to where, You've been crating your dog for two or three years without incident. Your dog's happy. You'll have a healthy relationship. Why Why throw it into, why mess that up potentially just because you think that the dog has really earned its freedom? Maybe the dog doesn't want the freedom in the house to where it can really kind of produce uh, an anxiety-inducing thing to where for three years I've been in the crate day in, day out while you're at work. Now all of a sudden I'm loose. I think that that could kind of really show its teeth pun intended in a number of different ways. Yeah, um, it it can definitely happen. And I'd say it probably is going to be much more likely with those fearful, anxious dogs. And maybe even with those, those dogs that are more, more territorial that are, you know, looking to challenge more often. Um, But, you know, again, when you're looking back at shapelessness and the unknown, and that's what sparks anxiety, having a crate is very predictable right? It is, it is there. It's concrete. There's four walls. This is how much space I have to move around. This is what is available to me. The kitchen table is not available to me. The front door and the people walking past it and the dogs walking past it is not available to me. The back door is not available to me with the squirrels and everything like that, right? Mom's bedroom is not available to me with all of her smells and things like that. And that's the fact that she's not here. So the crate can 
finally give some shape to that dog that's been feeling shapeless, that's just been feeling floating out into space. And going away from that might trigger that response to come back because they need that predictability, they need that structure. You also do sometimes get dogs that once people go away from the crate, the dogs do perfectly fine, right? And they do perfectly fine for an extended period of time. If people are like that, um, you know, I have no problem with them keeping the dog out of the crate, but I do recommend that they touch on the crate, you know, a, a few times a month to make sure that the dog doesn't lose that skill. Because when they go to the vet, when they go to the groomer, when, you know, there's a million and one reasons why a dog needs to go into a crate and those situations are already stressful enough. Let's make sure that we're not losing the skill that we, we brought in with the dog. So for instance, with us, um, all dogs stay in crates throughout their board and train program. And we have a lot of people that have like a six-year-old dog and they created the dog for the first year. It got to the point where it was really, really good. They let the dog be out of the crate and now it's six and it has resource guarding and aggression and all these other issues. And they're checking in for board and train and the dog hasn't been in a crate in five years, right? Well, that poses all sorts of big problems for me because I have to help get the dog into the crate and I have to change the response to the crate and things like that. So if they are going to go away from crate, the dog's doing well, just make sure you keep touching back on it. You know, maybe you don't use the crate during the day, but you use it at night or maybe you don't use it at night, uh, but you, you know, you use it during the day when you go to work or something like that. Maybe not getting rid of it all together so the dog can at least have that skill. And then if you have the anxious dog that starts, you know, falling apart, you can be like, all right, well, we're, we're back in the crate. We didn't lose that skill and we can get back to where we were. But yeah, that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm reminded not to relate prison to a crate situation, but how many people come out of prison after doing a long stint and they crave that just security of knowing like, it limits yeah, the your predictability. options. Absolutely. Yeah. The predictability. And, and yeah. That, so then they'll just go and, tr and try and get back into prison as soon as they can. Um, <laughs> uh, something that comes up quite often in the, in the hunting dog community. And, and I've been guilty of this as well is, uh, it's hard for us not to look at what's the best time within our pack or home to bring in a new dog, second dog, third dog, fourth dog, an additional dog into the pack we kind of look at it more through the lens of, I need more dog power. I'm going on these long trips. I want more dogs so that I can do what, what I love to do. In your opinion, when should pet owners and dog owners be considering to bringing in another dog into your living situation? And then also to add on to that, how do we go about introducing that dog to the dogs and people already in the house, especially including young kids? Yeah, I think it's a really, really good question because the, the reasons that I hear people getting a second, third, fourth dog are not usually the best reasons, you know? So one of the reasons I hear is we need a companion for our other dog because he's too rambunctious. He needs a friend, all of he's that. He's lonely. Sort of yeah, he's lonely. <laughs> I hear that that's really not a good reason. Um, other reasons are, you know, well, I just wanted another dog. You know, I love dogs so much. Also not a great reason. Third reason I understand a little bit more, but still not the best reason, but the dog needed a home, right? I get it. I get it. I almost kind of fell into that same circumstance with my second dog, needed a home, but I was already in the position for that second dog. But the real reason to get that second dog is, is to add to your, you know, your family environment, but the timing needs to be right. And that means that 
you need to have the time and the money for that second dog, right? That's a huge important thing because the dog is going to require training. The dog is going to require an education. The dog is going to require vet care and quality food, all of those things. Um, but one of the bigger things is, are you equipped to handle a pack? The moment you go from one dog to two, you now have a pack and everything changes. So is your dog knowledge up to par on that? And then as far as if you have another dog at home and you're gonna get this second dog, you have to ask yourself, is my first dog exactly where I want them to be? And if the answer is no, then you do not get a second dog because the moment you get the second dog, all of your time is split now. All of your attention is split now. And whatever goals you had for that first dog, absolutely go out the window, right? So if you say, well, my first dog is a really, really good dog, except he's still really reactive out on the walks. Okay, well, that's a good sign not to get a second dog because if you get that second dog, that reactivity, I guarantee you probably will never get fixed because now you have to separate your attention and your training time and everything else between that dog and the other dog. And let's say that you don't, let's say that you say, well, the new dog I got is just fine. He's doing great. I'm going to still keep all of my attention and training on the first dog. Well, what happens over time? That dog that's getting no coaching whatsoever is taking on all of the habits of this first dog. Now you have two reactive dogs that you can't control. You have to separate your time and you can only give half the attention that each dog needs, right? Which means the behaviors continue to digress over time. Then you add a third dog and a fourth dog, et cetera, and it just continues to grow. So if your first dog's not exactly where you want them to be, don't bother doing it, right? And if you don't have good control of your household, you've got tons and tons of kids and they run wild and all of that sort of stuff. And you're not going to have time for, or, you know, working with the dog and you're not going to have time to educate the kids and all this sort of stuff. Also not a good time because it's just a recipe for disaster. This is how kids get bit in the face. This is how dogs get put down. This is how, you know, broken arms and legs happen. This is how dogs escaping, getting picked up by animal control happen, you know, and you're getting fined over and over again, eventually getting the dog taken away, right? This is how all of those things happen. So planning is appropriate. When you do get the, the new dog and you're like, okay, this is the one, we're gonna bring it home with us. And it's the first time that you're bringing it home. Um, I highly, highly suggest taking the family and the dogs on a nice long pack walk together, right? The longer the walk, the better off the introduction will be. And during that time, whoever has the new dog, there should be a handler for each dog. Uh, by the time that um, your walk has gone on very long, then you can maybe talk about some interaction. But for the you know first half hour, 45 minutes of that walk, kids don't need to introduce themselves to the dog. They don't need to pet the dog. They don't need to do anything. The other dog doesn't need to get need to say hi. Nobody does. You're all just walking together and just practicing some neutrality. That way, when you know when you come to interactions, that new dog's already used to the smells right? And, and everybody else is used to the other dog. The energy that comes off of everybody, this kid is more sporadic than that kid. This dog was pretty uncomfortable with me in the beginning, but now has mellowed out quite a bit. Dad's got kind of a funky energy. Mom's got a soft energy, right? They're really feeling all of those things. And then when you have an interaction, the dog has learned a lot about the situation and you don't have those just explosions out of nowhere because it just blindsided them. Um, that would be my suggestion. Um, if you know that the dogs or dog 
have any type of aggression issue or anything like that, I would definitely make sure that that dog is muzzle conditioned before doing any type of introduction like this. Um, so that if there is something that you missed, you can at least address it rather than addressing an injury. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it, so many commonalities. I mean, obviously pet dog, it's just dog ownership at the end of the day, whether it's hunting dogs, pet dogs, or, or what have you. And I think a lot of, a lot of bad behaviors that are due from lack of exposure, lack of training. Uh, you know, it, it's so easy to get caught up into seeing the mistakes that our dogs make uh, and saying like, well, I screwed up on this one. I'm just going to do the next one better, but I love this first one. So I'm going to keep this first one and go ahead and move on to the second one and yeah. do the things that I learned from the first one wrong. And it's, it sounds good. And I think a lot of people fall into that trap, but I mm -hmm. think what you're describing is, is really more or less, uh, the, the truth, the common truth. And, and I learned, you know, for me, it wasn't really going from one to two dogs. That was a challenge. It was really going from two to three dogs. that was a challenge and it three. wasn't even adding mm -hmm. the third dog. It was balancing work and family and three dogs, uh -huh. because even though the other dogs, the first two to where they were perfectly fine and I was comfortable with where they were at, you still have to work with them. Like, you know, yeah. just because one is 10 or 11 years old, you still have to work with them. And so to your point, it's just like, I w used to have an hour to work one or two dogs. Now I have an hour to work three dogs. And by the way, that hour got cut to 45 minutes on a lunch break, right? So stuff like that to where, you know, you, you really don't really know your, your, um, to what extent you, you can really pull it off until you kind of get into that situation. And I'm learning to where like two dogs was perfect for me. The three dogs is doable, but I'm not, I'm not going I'm in to that exact right same, <laughs> exact same boat. I got my third dog and I went, Oh, Wow. This is a, this is a lot of commitment right here, you know, and you know that, you know, it going in and both of my other dogs were prepared for it. But I think again, with business and kids and everything else, I was just, I was like, oh my goodness, third dog. It's, it, you know, you really have to think about where that time is coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know we've covered a lot of ground, but again, with everybody that you get to interact with and the common, you know, questions and just engagement from your audience, I'm curious What's something that I should have asked you that I didn't? Boy, that's a, that's a tricky question. That's like an interview <laughs> question right there. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't really know. I guess a, a good question that, that people should not ask me is what breed should I get? You know, uh, stuff like that, because I'm dealing with pet, pet owners, pet dogs. It isn't about the breed. Because every breed, yes, has their own traits and things like that. But every puppy that comes out of every litter is so uniquely different, right? I, I have people that have goldens up the wazoo and they never should have had goldens. I have people who have labs up the wazoo. They never should have had labs. You should not have a Connie Corso, ma'am. You should not have one of those, right? <laughs> um, and so um, I, I really, really wish that people would just put more faith in, in uh, rescues. And when it comes to this particular thing, um, maybe not shelters quite as much because those dogs kind of fly in and fly out. But if you know you're looking for a very specific dog that says, I got great grandma and grandpa living at home. I got four little kids. We have a cat, um, stuff like that. I need a dog that's going to do well with all this. 
go to a rescue where that dog, the, all the dogs are living in foster homes and they'll tell you, hey, this little, this little hound dog right here, he's been living with four little kids. They've got a cat. He's been doing great for the last four months. This is the guy for you. Rather than maybe going to a breeder, uh, you know, we get lots of, lots of dogs from breeders and all breeders are different. And, you know, some take more care than others. Um, but we get lots and lots of dogs from breeders that are just not a good fit, right? They're not clicking with the kids. They're not clicking with the other dog. They are aggressive here, resource guarders or whatever. Um, and then you have dogs that are, you know, picked up as strays, picked up as shelter, things like that. And we still don't know anything about those dogs. And we're just hoping it all goes well. Um, I really like the rescue idea of, uh, you know, getting to know the, the dog, the actual specific dog before bringing it into your household. But if I had to say what breed for you, just make sure that you're absolutely researching, not what the AKC lists as the dog. So when it says this dog um, can be fiercely loyal, that means it's going to be aggressive to your guests. Okay. So start finding, <laughs> start finding what those terms actually mean and seeing if it's going to be the right fit for you. And if you're going to go with a breeder, make sure you're going with a high quality breeder, not your friend that bred in their backyard, not somebody outside of Walmart, none of those things, right? You're looking for a high quality breeder that's actually going to take care of those, those very formative weeks in the very beginning and really set your dog up for success. And if you are going to go to shelter rescue, try to get as much information as you absolutely possibly can. Not just say, well, I love labs or not just say, I, you know, this dog is cute or not just say, the whatever, right? Really, really get to know that dog because they are a huge commitment. And if you have children, you have other dogs, you have cats, you have any of those things. Great Aunt Lucy lives at home. You also have a really big safety situation to think about. So um, it should not be taken lightly. And just asking me what breed means you're not ready. It means you're not ready to, to have that dog just yet. You've got to do a lot of research. So that might be, that might be one thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, just remember that there's there's just as much differences within the breeds as there are amongst them. You know, the oh, yeah. lines and breeders that you go to uh, matter just as much as the actual individual breed itself. Uh, Stephanie, why don't you go ahead and plug? I know you guys have like a, a really ambitious tour, if it's fair to call it that, this year. Why don't you go ahead and pitch everything you have going on at Method K9, where everybody can find you and all the fun stuff? Sure, sure. So we have our our services here at our our home base here in Post Falls, Idaho. So we, um, of course, do board and trains and things like that. We have a train the owner program, uh, which is where people actually get to walk through their own board and train and train their own dog throughout the process. Uh, we have train the trainer programs. So these are really in-depth um, courses to teach people how to be dog trainers. And uh, we also have services where we can help really anybody anywhere. We have a video subscription page with lots of videos and tutorials for just about every subject. We do Zoom calls and things like that. So we can work with anybody across the, across the world. And we are just recently launching um, a 50 state tour where we will be doing two day seminars um, in any state that's willing to host us if we can find a host there. Um, and we'll be working our way around the country for those two-day tours to help people who might not be able to travel to us. So we have a little bit of everything for everyone, whatever, whatever your location is, whatever your price range is, we have something for you. Absolutely. And, and listeners, if uh, you want to check out the links, I'll have Stephanie's links down in the show notes. And hope you enjoyed this episode presented by Standing Stone Supply, Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Stephanie, this was a true pleasure. I hope to do it again with you sometime soon. Excellent. Thank you so much.
appreciate it. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again and year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.